our question for today is, what's wrong with having a little bit of fun? It's a good question. And there's a good answer. Nothing. There's nothing wrong with having a bit of fun. So that's it. <laughs> Any questions? <laughs> no, obviously I'll, I'll go further than that, but I do actually think that this is a good place to start, right? I think it's a good place to start to realise that generally speaking, uh, having fun is not evil, right? It's not a sin to have a good time. But the question here actually implies that there is something wrong with having fun. And usually when you hear this question or you hear people talking like this, it's used in a kind of accusatory manner as a response or sometimes as a bit of defensiveness, like getting on the front foot. Someone kind of thinks that someone's going to have something to say about what their behaviour is and so they get on the front foot and say, it's just a bit of fun, what's wrong with having a bit of fun? This is the kind of question I would suggest that people ask usually when they know very well that there might be something wrong with the kind of fun that they're having. What I mean is, you don't hear people saying this, you don't hear people asking this question um, and talking like this when they're talking about playing in the park with their kids or kicking a ball around or playing skirmish or reading a good book or hanging out with their friends, right? There's plenty of fun stuff that we don't feel like we need to justify. There's plenty of fun stuff that we don't question in this way. Usually when we hear this question, it's when there's something in there as a part of the fun that someone is attacking or questioning. And it's also often what people say when they themselves know that there's something dodgy going on in the background. Now, if you watch the promo video for this week, if you didn't know, on, on Facebook, uh, there's promo videos that are getting made for each, uh, each message. Uh, and the promo video that Sondi uh, made this week, he used as an example going to the vault, which is a strip club. And I think that's far more the kind of thing that we'd expect this kind of question to be thrown around for, right? Uh, something that's inherently a bit more questionable, something like that kind of fun. And what this suggests is that it is not fun which is the problem, okay? Fun is not a problem. There's nothing wrong with having a bit of fun. Rather, it's a particular kind of fun or a particular method of achieving a good time which is questionable. As I said before, fun is not sin. In fact, I think you could say the exact opposite statement you could say, sin is not fun. Sin is never fun. At least not in the sense that it brings happiness or contentment. Sin usually brings a kind of pleasurable distraction, but it doesn't bring real happiness and it doesn't bring lasting contentment. So as usual, this is a question of specifics and definitions. And also as usual, uh, it's because people are loose with their words and their meanings that questions like this can be thrown around and do a lot of damage. You know, people can use them and suggest that they've got a you know, knockout argument when really, when we start unpacking the question, there's not really much of an argument there at all. Despite the fact, as I said, that sin is not fun, it's true that some people can at some times certainly seem to have a lot of fun doing a lot of sin. So as our first question, or as our first answer to this question, and the question is what's wrong with having a little bit of fun, we'll turn to the question of what exactly fun, or in this case, pleasure actually is. And I think one of the best discussions about this topic that I've read is from C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. For some context, if, you, if you're not familiar with The Screwtape Letters, if you don't know it, it's a book in which Lewis, C.S. Lewis, the author, takes on the character of Screwtape, who's a senior demon, and he's writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood. And these letters are telling his nephew how to best tempt humans. 
Okay, so Wormwood's job is a junior tempter and he's learning from his, his uncle how to do a really good job of tempting humans. Okay, so the following is from letter nine in the book. This is what it says. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Now, when he says the enemy there, obviously he's talking about God, right? So this is a demon talking about his enemy, and the enemy, therefore, is God. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Now, here Lewis establishes three answers to our question of what's wrong with having a little fun. You can see it there. It is times, ways and degrees. Now, this is a fairly straightforward thing to understand, right? There are certain pleasures which exist for people in a normal and healthy way only at certain times in their lives. For example, the pleasure of sex is for people who are married and thus the timing is after marriage. There are also certain pleasures which should only be achieved in certain ways. For example, the pleasure of going really fast in a car should be under controlled, safe uh, conditions and not through a school zone at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of town. And there are obvious limitations also on degrees or amounts of pleasure. There's nothing wrong with the pleasure of a bit of chocolate, but uh, there might be something wrong with the pleasure of 10 kilograms of chocolate. And here we witness something uh, that I think is really important. It's the times, ways or degrees which actually start to twist a good thing and turn a good thing into a bad thing. It's how fun becomes wrong in our question. And this, I think, is therefore answering the question. It's not the fun, that is, it's not the feeling that's wrong per se, but it's the way in which that feeling or that fun is achieved. So Sondi's example of the strip club is one in which the particular kind of fun which is being experienced, is actually tapping into a normal and good and even holy instinct within us. But it's perverting it. It's taking it at a time, in a way, and in an amount which is forbidden. And this leads us to two points. The first one is a point of definition. I'm an English teacher and I think definitions are really important, right? Most of the confusions that we have, in fact, a lot of the conflict that we have in our life is because you're talking to someone about, you think, the same thing, but actually you're talking about two different things because you haven't agreed upon a certain definition. And this one, I think, is really helpful to understand, and it's about the nature of evil. To put it simply, and this is going to sound way too simple, right, so I'll explain it, but to put it simply, there is no such thing as evil. Evil is not a thing, like it doesn't exist, not in the same way as truth or beauty and goodness exist, not in the same way as a car exists or a chair exists. Everything that exists, God created, and God did not create evil. Pleasure is good, and all that screw tape can do is to tempt people to take that pleasure in ways that are forbidden. God created all things without exception good, 
and because they are good. As St. Augustine says, no nature is bad, and the word bad denotes merely privation of good. That's what the word bad means. It means the privation of good. And thus, as Lewis points out in his book, The Preface to Paradise Lost, what we call bad things are actually good things perverted. I think that's a really helpful, because a lot of the time, one of the, one of the questions or the arguments that people have is, like, why is there all this evil in the world? Why did God create evil? Well, God didn't create evil. He created people. And people are pretty good at turning good things into bad things. I think it's a helpful reminder of the fact that pleasure is not bad. In fact, there is nothing that exists which is in essence bad, but that we as humans have a tendency to take good things and to make them bad. And the second thing, then, that comes out of this is what I think the real question is. When someone says, what's wrong with having a little fun? They're not really interested so much in that question. I think they're interested in a different question. Rather than what's, having, what's wrong with having a little fun, I think the question is, why is this fun at this time, in this way, and in this amount forbidden? Why is it forbidden? In other words, why is anything forbidden? Why does God have rules? That's the problem that people really have. Why are there rules? Why is someone telling me what to do? Now, you may have heard it put like this, right? You heard a lot lot of this around the time of the the vote on same-sex marriage last year, right? People would say things like this. Why does God care so much about what people do in their own bedrooms behind closed doors? It's no one's business. It's no one else's business. Why, Why does God care about that? People seem to have a big issue with... God having any rules at all. They, they, they have an issue with the fact that God cares about certain things. In fact, it's usually this and this point alone that people focus on when they talk about religion. When they think of God, they think of rules. What's the Bible? A book of rules. What's God? Old man in the sky with rules stopping me from having any fun. But let's ask the question again. Why does God care? Well, actually, I think that the answer is answered in the question. Why does God care? He cares because he cares. What I mean is God cares about your behaviour for the same reason that I care about my daughter's behaviour, because it's embarrassing me in the supermarket. No, not really. (laughs) Why do we care about our kids' behaviour? Why do we sometimes try to stop our kids from having so-called fun? Why do I stop my daughter from having the fun of eating cat food or the fun of jumping on the top bunk? Why do I care about these things? I care about these things because I care about her. I care about her behaviour because I love her and I want what's best for her. And I know that eating cat food and falling off the top bunk actually, much as she might want to disagree with me, will not make her happy. They won't bring fun at all. They'll bring misery. And to again demonstrate the point that I made before about uh, the nature of evil, cat food and top bunks, they're not evil things, right? They're actually good things, as long as they're used according to their purposes. It's when we use them against their purpose that they start to become bad things. They can be twisted. And this is why God cares. He cares because he cares about us. The very fact that there are times, ways and degrees that God has forbidden is because he knows us. He knows what we are and how we're made because he made us. God knows what will truly make us happy 
And he also knows what will truly hurt us and make us miserable. It's not because he doesn't want us to have fun. It's the exact opposite. It's because he does want us to have fun, real fun. And by that, I mean joy, lasting joy. Screwtape, I think, says something really well, and I'm sure it might be an experience that you're familiar with. He says, Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. And this is what happens to us. We ruin good things because we don't know when to stop. This is what happens when a new song comes out and you love it and you just flog it to death, you just thrash it, and then within a couple of weeks you can't stand the sound of it anymore because you've ruined it for yourself. This is what happens when you eat so much McDonald's you get sick. It's the reason that drug addicts escalate their intake. Right? The same old drug and the same old amount doesn't get them the same old high. It doesn't get the job done, so they need to go harder. It's the reason that people's online porn addictions can get out of control and get into really weird and dangerous material. People don't start at that level. That is something that happens over time when people become desensitised. So that's what's wrong with having a little fun because we're very bad at having just a little bit. And there's a reason for this. I think there's a reason that we struggle to only have a little and I think it's because we know that we're built for a lot more. Deep inside us we yearn for the kind of joy that we know that we're made for. We know it subconsciously, intrinsically, that there's a fullness of happiness and joy that is out there somewhere for us but we settle really easily we are so easily pleased lewis says we are far too easily pleased this true joy that i'm talking about this is what uh, in in christian tradition has been called the beatific vision the beholding of jesus and being in the full presence of god and we get little tastes of this all the time in our life through the joy and the pleasure the little pleasures that he has made for us but like silly children, we take the foretaste, you know, we take the entree and we gorge on it, forsaking the main. Not only forsaking the main meal, but mistaking the canapé for all that there is. And so we go to town on those canapés. I do this at basically every wedding, right? I'm just like, I'm all about the canapés, right? And then I'm really full when the good stuff comes. But because that pleasure, whatever this, this, this little foretaste of the true joy of the beatific vision is because of this pleasure that god has given us here on earth whatever it is be it worldly success or food or sex or video games exercise our relationships our control over other people at work whatever it is because it is not built to be able to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart it won't it can't but foolishly we try it more and more and we get less and less from it. And at that point, when the thing that we have turned to so often for pleasure and for joy and fulfillment can't live up to what we want it to live up to anymore, we look around and the world seems to have lost its meaning. I think this is one of probably many things that can be operating in what's generally termed a midlife crisis. You just look around and you're like, well, what am I doing here? I haven't had a good time in a long time because all the things that used to give me a good time, 
they don't, they don't cut it anymore. Whatever the pleasure, whatever the fun, it's just a foretaste. It's just an inkling. And yet we stop and we stay with it and we try to force it. We try to force it to be our God. We try to force it to satisfy us to the fullness of how much we can be satisfied. There's another way to answer this question as well. And that is that there is a natural reaction to everything that we do. If someone asks the question, what's wrong with having a little bit of fun? And by having that fun, what they're talking about is breaking part of God's law. An answer to what's wrong with it is that most likely it's going to come back to bite them. It'll come back to haunt them. Everything we do matters. I think a great way of putting it is like this. Sin is its own punishment. Going against the natural order, which is going against God's law, is going to hurt you. You're a part of nature. You can't break those laws because you're a part of it. I said it last week and I'll say it again, and this is an old quote from Cecil B. DeMille. You cannot break God's law. You can only break yourself against it. The sin is the punishment. And you know what that punishment is a lot of the time? When we talk about the sin being the punishment, a lot of the time these days, that that punishment is loneliness. If you think about it, a lot of what drives certain desires is an obsession with individualism and independence. If we're going to return to the example uh, that, that Sonda used in the video of the vault, that is the desire for the wrong amount of a certain kind of pleasure at the wrong time in the wrong way. And what is one thing that is so appealing about that particular kind of fun, but that is also so wrong about it? It's that it doesn't have really any costs. There's no strings attached, no commitment. In other words, you're taking something which is supposed to be a package deal, it's supposed to be protected by covenant and commitment, and you're removing the human commitment element. You're actually removing the relationship from it. But the crazy thing is that the result of this is loneliness because we are built for relationships. And so many of the things that we actively pursue in our life is an independence from relationships because we think that's going to make us happy. Jean-Paul Sartre said that uh, hell is other people. I think he, he got that exactly the wrong way around. I think hell is completely isolation. Because the, the fact is that this guy, the man at the vault getting what he wants without any of the commitment, without any of the cost, eventually goes home to an empty house and a cold bed. Or, if he's married and the house is full and the bed warm, it's not going to stay that way. Not for long, not if he keeps going. See, the sin is its own punishment. The thing that you want is actually the thing that you don't want because we want the wrong things. Last week, someone asked in question time... uh, Is it possible, not in uh, parliamentary question time, although this would be a great question for someone to ask in parliamentary question time. (laughs) Wouldn't that be amazing if they asked decent questions and gave decent answers? Last week, someone asked in our question time, is it possible for your desires to change? And I think this, this, what I just talked about with this person going to the vault, I think that's a great example of the way that they do change. Because when you get glimpses, not only of the sadness and isolation and despair that so-called fun actually brings, 
but also glimpses of the joy of working hard and committing to a relationship and the discipline and self-sacrifice of raising children, you realise that that's the real deal and you want the real deal, despite how hard it is. I should probably point something out, uh, which is kind of important, right? When I say that the sin is the punishment, I'm not here wanting to dispute God's forgiveness. Okay, God forgives. If you sin, if you try and have a little fun in a way that he knows is not good for you and is therefore forbidden, he's going to forgive you. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get away scot-free. The sin might be wiped clean, but there are natural consequences of our actions. And these are consequences that God might not, and actually I think is usually unlikely to deliver you from. Sometimes he does, but not always. Because those natural repercussions of your sin probably should be felt. And God often uses them to remind us and to sanctify us. But even if we were able to magically find a way that there really isn't anything wrong with having a certain kind of fun, like if we could come up with an example where it doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be any kind of repercussion, no one finds out and your life remains perfect and peachy, I think there still is a dramatic way that you're being impacted because everything that you do changes you. Every choice we make is turning us into a type of person. And that type of person will one day be the person that says to God, thy will be done, or to whom God says, fine, have it your way. The choices that we make impact us and shape us and turn us into kinds of people that then go out into the world and interact with people. People do not change overnight. People change over time through habituated practices that they don't question, that don't, at seem, don't seem at first to have a big negative influence. But the the culmination of that actually starts to change you quite dramatically. Everything you do changes you and turns you into a particular kind of person. Your habits shape you and form you, and the secret sins that no one ever finds out about, they still shape you. Even if no one knows about them, they shape you. And in that way, it's impossible to say that a particular activity is no one else's business, that it doesn't affect anybody else, because the person that you are is shaped by it, and then that person is the person that goes out into the world and affects people. Right? Everything affects everybody else. In this way, everything we do really does have an impact on other people, and therefore, this is like a real bugbear of mine when people want to kind of throw this stuff around. I think it's important to recognise that in, in one particular sense, there is no private business. When we say stuff like, that's none of your business... In one sense, it's probably true, but in another sense, because we're all connected and impacting each other all of the time, everything is impacting other people. It doesn't mean that you need to know about stuff, but it, it doesn't also mean that we should be so foolish as to think it's not going to impact other people. This claim that was thrown around a lot last year with the same-sex marriage, that's, it's got nothing to do with you, it's not going to affect you, it's not going to hurt you, I think it's just... Ridiculous. I, I just think it's clear that we live in a society where everyone is affecting each other all the time. Now these are, I think, some good logical reasons to think twice before we want to claim that there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of fun. Just interrogating the question further can start to reveal that perhaps, depending on the situation, there really is something wrong with having a little fun, and actually, it might not be that fun anyway. 
But there's also an important theological reason to think twice about the question. The implication of the question is that you have a kind of ownership over yourself. We hear this claim all the time. It's my body. All the time people are saying this. It's my body. Well, I want to just stop for a second and just question that, right? Is it? What do we mean by that? What do we mean when we say it's my body? Even from... I think, you know, a, just a logical, non-theological perspective, we can see that the claim is, is, is pretty rocky, it's pretty tenuous, right? You didn't conceive yourself and you had no say in it. You didn't nourish your body as it grew in the womb and you were unconscious of the process while it was happening. You didn't feed and clothe yourself or change your own nappies or teach yourself to talk. There is no such thing as a self-made man. That's... That's a lie. That's impossible. There's no such thing as a fully independent or autonomous person. The only thing that we really have is people who have forgotten how dependent they once were and who are ignoring how dependent they in fact are right now. You do not own yourself. From the theological perspective, I think this becomes even clearer. You you don't own yourself. You are owned you were created. Your body is not your own plaything to decide what to do and how to treat it and how to destroy it. And there's a little bit of, you know, what I find interesting, you might not find interesting, philosophical history behind this, right? So this idea is, can roughly be called dualism. And dualism posits that there's a distinct separation and difference between physical and non-physical in a person and in the world, right? Physical and spiritual. In early Christianity, this was called Gnosticism, and one of the particular beliefs was Manichaeism, which suggested that everything that was good was spiritual and everything that was physical was bad. And the answer, therefore, for the Gnostic was a form of extreme asceticism. Asceticism is like the, the rejection of pleasure and fun, a rejection of material things for the sake of pursuing the spiritual, because the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. But there's a big problem with this, right? And Gnosticism is not Christianity. It doesn't align with Christianity. Because at its heart, this idea rejects God's word when he says that he looked at the world that he created and said that it was good. God likes the physical world. He gave us bodies not as an accident. I mean, this was his plan. The, f- the physical is good. It's not something that should be eschewed, something that should be feared, that should be escaped. Uh, and much later, around 1,500 years later, a new kind of dualism reared its head. And this time, it had the opposite result of, of asceticism. Rene Descartes posited something that came to be called Cartesian dualism, which again separated the non-physical from the physical. But instead of the spirit, Descartes said that we were mainly mind, that what humans really were was mind. If you've ever heard that saying, I think, therefore I am... This was when Descartes came up with it, right? He was trying to work out what people were, what couldn't be doubted, and it was your ability to think that became the only undoubtable thing, and therefore he kind of reduced us down to just thinking things. And that's what we were, just thinking things. We're mainly mind, and that body is just a container for our mind. It's like a fleshy cage. So we, we kind of were these ghosts in machines. Cartesian dualism really swept across the world and really informed the rise of atheism through the Enlightenment. And it became the default background subconscious perspective of most people and was used as a justification for having a little bit of fun. 
right? And this is where we start to see claims like it's my body starting to come in. Because if you're just a mind with a body, it's your body. Do what you want with it. I read an article just this morning, actually, that included exactly that sentiment, it's my body, on a poster. Stop policing my body, it read. I don't know if anybody read the news this morning or watched it last night, but it was, of course, from the referendum that took place in Ireland yesterday, uh, one in which the majority of people voted to decriminalise abortion. So I think 67%. Something in the 60s percent voted to decriminalise abortion, whereas previously, up until this referendum, it had been illegal. And actually, abortion is a really good example of exactly what is going on with both of these claims. These claims that there's nothing wrong with having a little bit of fun, and it's my body, I can do what I want. In the first case, what we have developed in the modern West is a whole array of technical know-how that we use to circumvent nature to get around the natural consequences of thing, things. And we do this precisely so that we can have a little bit of fun. See, for the vast majority, not all of them, but for most likely the majority of abortions that will now take place in Ireland, they are required for two reasons. Firstly, two people wanted to have a little bit of fun. And secondly, they want to keep having a bit of fun. That's about it. Now, there's always reactions to everything. Every choice we make matters and is connected to other choices and other people. But one of the problems that we face today is that we're really good at ignoring these problems, these connections, and not seeing these results because we've found sanitised technological ways of dealing with these problems. We don't see them anymore. In some ancient cultures, if, if someone became pregnant and didn't want the baby, they couldn't have an abortion, they didn't have the technology, so they just waited for the baby to be born and then they just left it out in the wilderness to die. I think if that's where we were today, we would probably have far less and we'd probably have far more outcry about it than what we currently have. See, technology has found a way to sanitise. You go into a little room, you come out of that room, it's all good, right? We've sanitised the reality and we've done this. We, we use technology almost primarily just so that we can have a bit of fun. Like that's, that's kind of the primary function of the way that we use technology. Yes, we say that it helps us to do stuff and to be faster and to be more productive, but what do we want to be more productive for? So we can have a better time, so we can have more downtime, so that we can make more money, so that we can use that money to have more fun, Right? The second claim that it's my body, I think, is most clearly seen as the farce that it is through abortion, right? Clearly, I mean, indisputably, logically, there are two bodies at, at work in an abortion, the mother and the child. But actually, and I think that this is an important thing to recognise, there are more than two, right? There's the body of the man that was involved in the, in the beginning of the process, There's the bodies of the people who are doing this as a job, doing these procedures. There's the bodies of the families who are related to them. We're all connected. And in one way, you could say, and I think this is something that we should say more often, but we should be careful with the implications of it and what exactly it means. Um, We all belong to each other. We're all that connected that we should see that we have more of a responsibility to each other. This individualism thing 
not only is it not helpful, but it's not true. It's not real. And so pretending it's real is not going to have good impacts. This idea that we belong to each other is obviously a biblical idea. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 12. For the body does not consist of one uh, one member of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I think sometimes that last little bit, If one member suffers, all suffer together. We think that's something that we should aspire to. You know, like we should love each other enough so that if someone is suffering, we suffer with them. I think that's true, but I also think this is not just an aspirational reality. This is reality. If one person's suffering, we all suffer, whether you realise it or not. We all suffer. That is the nature of us as humans and our relationships with each other. So let's summarise where we've been. First of all, I think it's important to recognise that there is nothing wrong with having a little bit of fun. We're not Gnostics. We don't believe that pleasure is evil. But we do recognise that uh, humans are pretty bad at making it evil. We have a tendency to twist good things and make them into bad things. I think one one of the sad things about the modern church is that we've lost track of and we don't really talk about the virtues anymore. And, you know... Christian tradition has a long history of of talking about particular virtues that we should aspire to, that we should work towards trying to achieve in our life. And one of them, probably one of the ones uh, which is really kind of gone, particularly in our kind of capitalist West, where it's about making money and spending money. And if you ever hear politicians talk about it, just that's all they want. They just want people to make money and then spend that money so that other people make it and then spend it and just goes around and around forever. I think one of those virtues that we've lost is temperance. Temperance is this ability to have a little bit of something and not too much. Self-control is is a thing of the past and we've really done this to ourselves, right, by the way that we live. In a world in which we can have what we want immediately, we really start to believe that we should have what we want immediately, that it's a right that we have. You know, I, I think it's really interesting the way people talk about the NBN, Now, I'm not disputing the fact that having fast internet is very important for people's livelihood, but 50 years ago, no one had it and everyone was alive, right? People are talking about this like it's a basic human right. Uh, Basic human rights can't be invented, right? They're either either always there as what it means to be basically human or they're not, but we, we do start to buy into this. And Christians buy into this just as much as anybody else because it's, it's, the, it's the social sludge that we're in and it kind of burns away at us without us realising. The other thing is that we actually start to laugh at people who do without simply because they know that it's good for them to do without. And I should know because I used to laugh at my dad about this a lot. My dad bought a car in 1973. New. Renault 12 TL. Oh, such a good car. Actually, no, it was a piece of crap. But <laughs> the reason it was is because it was 
my brother's first car, it was my first car, like this car lived forever and mum wanted it gone, right? And a couple of years ago it had an unceremony, I don't know what happened, we wanted to take it out and blow it up because we, we thought that'd be a great way to say goodbye to it, but it was like 30 years with the same car and I, I, honestly, I used to laugh at dad, but you don't see that anymore, right? You don't see people trying to make things last anymore and dad could have afforded a new car, drove that thing, it was like one of the big bosses out at the Okiyami base and he drove that thing out there every day. All the people called him grandma, apparently. <laughs> my dad actually, I keep talking about my dad for a second, he quite famously fixed a rake. <laughs> Who fixes a rake? <laughs> like, this thing is old, it's probably older than me, right? And I'm saying is because, yeah, it's still around. Okay, but right now, if you were to look at it, it, it would be unrecognizable. I don't think there are any original parts left. <laughs> it's a conglomeration of wire and bits of other rakes that he probably found at garage sales, and he's like, oh, this would be good for spare parts, like, spare parts for a rake. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and the handle is just a branch that he chopped out of a tree. <laughs> I'm not even joking, am I? Look at him. It's true. He would have spent more time on that rake than it would have taken to buy 20 racks, right? And probably more money as well. But the truth is, and I always used to ask Dad, like, why don't you just buy a new car? Why don't you buy a new this or a new that or whatever? But I know now, actually, whether intentionally or not, he was practising the lost art of temperance, right? Of making things last. Of just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it, right? And the truth is, I think, most of the time when people ask this question... What's wrong with having a little bit of fun? It's because deep down there is something wrong. People, like I say, people don't ask it about things which are clearly, like, there's, there's no question about it. People ask it about things that they know deep down there's something wrong. But it is exactly that part of the thing that is wrong which is actually the part that is not fun. That's the part, the part of the fun which is wrong, which is the part that will bring division despair, isolation and misery. I think James puts it best when he says this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's where our stupid ideas of fun get us. That's the bad news. But the good news comes directly in the verses following. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. The Christian life isn't one devoid of fun. It's simply one in which we've recognised that God knows us better than we know ourselves. He's got an instruction manual for life, for a life well lived. In fact, you could almost say it's an instruction manual that is designed to maximise fun in the same way that using the instruction manual for a washing machine maximises the potential to get the most out of that machine. All of us probably tend too far in one direction, either too far towards asceticism and a rejection of good fun, or too far towards taking fun and pleasure at times in ways or degrees that he has forbidden, which will ultimately not be fun at all.